Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a Canadian video game designer and director. After graduating from the University of British Columbia with an MFA in creative writing, he joined Ubisoft Montreal, where he co-wrote the script for Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell. In 2005, he directed a sequel to that game, Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, and three years later released the oppressive but acclaimed sandbox shooter Far Cry 2. In 2010, he left Ubisoft and joined LucasArts, then Valve, then Amazon Game Studios, before finally returning to Canada to work as creative director on the Ubisoft game Watch Dogs Legion. A keen thinker on video games, my guest coined the term ludonarrative dissonance to describe when a game's story and mechanics sit at odds with one another. And today he serves as creative lead at Ubisoft Montreal, the studio he first joined as a graduate, where he is now working on Assassin's Creed Infinity. Welcome, Clint Hocking. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to good to meet you. I mean, we've spoken before on email, but uh, yeah, it's nice to, to see you in person. Well, in fact, in fact, I, in fact, I guess I kind of worked for you for a while back when you were, 
an editor for Edge, and I was writing a, a column for you, I think. So, oh uh, right, yeah, many years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, I've only ever been a freelancer at Edge, so I was I was not trusted with editing your fine uh, columns, <laughs> oh, okay, but okay. Uh, but yeah, certainly <laughs> sat alongside them. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read your read your work and your columns for for many many years, and have always in, enjoyed them. I noticed I was reading your Twitter bio, and you describe yourself as usually the most cynical person in the room, which is <laughs> which is not something that I detect in in your writing over the years. Right. So you know what what is it that you mean by this? And you know, I guess where is that quality useful, and where's it a hindrance? <laughs> you really want to open that box right at the start, huh? <laughs> so we can dive deep into that. Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, I, I'm, I've always been a pessimist. You know, one of my uh, one of my sort of mottos is the pessimist is never disappointed. I uh, <laughs> I, I don't have uh, high hopes for how things will turn out or how situations will go. And I think um, I think Far Cry Two is a is a great example of a pretty uh, cynical look at at a certain kind of conflict. Or you know, some may some may say realistic. I think of it as a as a realistic or honest or at least from a from a less populist perspective. Right. It it, it def- definitely doesn't look at it from the flag waving jingoistic kind of. Uh, uh, happy-go-lucky mercenary perspective, and you know that's pretty much how I, I look at the world. I look at modern technology development. I look at modern social media. I look at you know modern industry, capitalism, all of these things from a from a very um, cynical perspective. And you know it's part of part of who I am, I guess. How's that? How's that work when you have to inspire people as a creative director, though? Um, I mean, I think I think you know how how I see the world and and how I inspire people are I think are probably different things. For me, I find a lot of motivation in in that cynicism, right? I don't, you know, I see I see the world as as something to rail against, often something to to fight against, something to protest. So, you know, working on on Legion or working on Far Cry Two, it's easy to help. It's easy to help motivate people by giving them a by giving them a common enemy, right? Right. right. <laughs> Look at this injustice, and and sometimes you know people don't necessarily see these injustices, and it's for me it just comes naturally, unfortunately, I guess. But but it's very easy for me to say, "Look at this. This is a problem. Like, see how this problem affects all of us. We you know we can make a game about confronting that problem. Maybe it's going to have a tragic, horrible ending, <laughs> but." But we can at least uh, at least we can take up arms against it and try to show it to other people in a way that hopefully motivates more positive-minded, hopeful people to <laughs> to solve the problem. Right, right. Interesting. That's uh, I suppose um, injustice as a as a motivational force can be can be quite fraught in the context, I guess, of working on blockbuster video games where you're trying to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. And you are someone who who talks openly about about this kind of stuff via your your blog and your columns and all of that sort of thing in an outspoken way that I think we might normally associate with indie game makers rather than people who work for massive studios. Right. Has that ever got you in trouble at the various places you've worked? Um no, you know it hasn't. I think one of the reasons I'm I'm drawn to Ubisoft and I don't know if it's a Ubisoft thing or a or a French cultural thing, but there's definitely a lot of openness to to dialogue and and philosophy and discussion there's open-mindedness towards these kinds of things so when i talk about you know with with my bosses and with editorial in different parts of the company about the direction i want to go with the game they're not just smiling and nodding and going oh don't worry it's going to have lots of explosions there's there's an engagement with in the conversation and and you know i i also get help with i don't want it to sound like therapy uh, maybe it is, 
I get help in the sense that they help me understand what I'm trying to do so that it, or understand this injustice that I might be grappling with or addressing in a way that can make it, you know, more accessible or more, uh, have a wider reach, right? You know, they, they have a, they can bring a detachment that I can't necessarily bring that helps me, you know, focus the team and my own creativity towards, towards something that is maybe more constructive or maybe more um, accessible than it would be if it was just me myself as mm. it has it indeed, right? Right, right, right. Are you able to say what the injustice is? That's the sort of focal point for your current project that you're working on. I mean, I, <laughs> I know you probably can't get into too many specifics, but what's what's the kernel of that idea that you're you're focused on? Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna not gonna talk about that one here today. I'm, mm, I'm sure. happy to say I'm working on Assassin's Creed Hexate, uh, but that's all all we're ready to talk about right now. Okay, fair enough. So I am going to ask like a slightly difficult question. The tone of this podcast is celebratory, but, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking, oh, I probably need to ask you about some of the news stories that Ubisoft has had recently. It wasn't quite sure where to put it in this conversation, but let's tackle it head on. So, sure. you know, Ubisoft has been the subject of some high profile reports of workplace harassment, misconduct in the last few years. And I think that's uh, been admitted by the higher ups because by way of an apparent overhaul of workplace culture and all of that kind of thing. Now, I definitely don't want you to comment on that as a, in the role of a spokesperson or anything like that, but I'm interested in your personal experience of seeing that kind of stuff come to light at a place that you're associated with. You know, what was what went through your mind when you first read some of those stories? Yeah, I mean, it was very difficult. That news broke when we were uh, in, down in, in COVID lockdown uh, trying to ship Watch Dogs Legion. And as you know, the Watch Dogs legion team in particular right we were as i said just a few minutes ago trying to make this game that was you know celebrating diversity and and you know celebrating unity and and people coming together and supporting one another so it was a really uh it was a very demoralizing thing for us but i think as a you know i think we 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 listened to those accusations and we addressed them and we you know had independent third parties conduct the investigations and people were removed and and we moved on and you know it doesn't it doesn't erase the things that happened those, those are you know a part of our of our history now and, and we can't forget that but we and we've put in place things to make sure that that it it can't happen again or if it if it happens again we can address it and deal with it and and yeah i mean i think my team around me is, we've had training as well. So my team around me, everybody is aware of, you know, what happened. And I think we can look forward to being more supportive and more collaborative and having having more room for more and more diverse voices and become, I think maybe, maybe become the company maybe many of us thought we were for a long time. And I think it's, uh, I think there's, I think that that's a ray of hope for the future for us. Mm. It can take a long time, I suppose, for the memory of those sort of big stories to to turn around, can't it? Particularly with such a big, a big company like like uh, you know Ubisoft or whoever, any of these massive uh, games companies. The sort of after effects, I guess, of those stories can can hang around for a long time. How do you think you go about restoring that image, perhaps uh, over over the long term? And I suppose. That, talking personally, like for your own teams, how are you working to ensure that they're all properly supported, no matter how senior those individuals are? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed. We have a, we have a, a company 
you know, um, I forget the exact title, vice president or company um, C-level officer of diversity and inclusion. We have diversity and inclusion programs. We have, um, and then of course, on the, we have private channels for for reporting and independent third parties for investigation and much more formal processes and training, all of that stuff. But I think it also we have support. You know, like I was saying a minute ago, you know, when we when we confront difficult challenges or or difficult themes in our games, there's an engagement in the company to deal with that. And this becomes part of that. It's a tool set that we've always had. And and now we just, you know, we're, there's more openness around it. And I think people on the teams are are able to talk about these these challenges and we're able to, you know, work towards, you know, making our games more diverse, more inclusive, and more uh, aware of, of the challenges that people in the world face. Do you, uh, I mean, you've worked in, in the video game space for a really long time. Um, do you still feel as excited about the possibilities of video games as when you first started out? Uh, yeah, probably even, probably even more so. You know, I feel like, I feel like the industry, which I, I'll use that loosely, sometimes I use it more specifically, but the, the sort of entire community of people who make games is much, much, much larger than it's ever been. You know, many, many times, orders of magnitude larger, I, I imagine. And it was when I started. And so, you know, there's so much diversity in the things that we can play and the experiences that we can have and the and the things that we can express as creators. I think, you know, there's a difference between the capital I industry that I work in and the the larger industry where you have all kinds of small games and independent games and, and AAA slash independent games and everything in between now. And I think that's that's spectacular. I mean, we're gonna talk about some of my games. Uh, that I picked for this, uh, and we're going to go back quite far in the past. But you know, one of the points I'll make is like there was a time when there was one or two games a year that that were you know interesting, and so some of these games I played five, six, seven, eight times because that was I was waiting for the next game, right? Not the next game I wanted to play, just mm. the next game. <laughs> and uh, and I think now it's literally like I miss I miss fifty games a year that I really want to play just because there's so many of them. And I think that's, in, in some ways, that's sad because <laughs> there's so many experiences that I would love to have that I miss. But in you know, in other ways, it's it's magical and wonderful. Yeah, so. it's testament to how much work is being produced around the world, isn't it, by different people. Well, that seems like a really good point to come to the point of the podcast. So I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your ideal fictional games console. Um as you say, there you've picked uh, you picked games from from across the spectrum and from different years. Why don't we uh, you start by telling us about your first choice, which is a fairly early game? What is it, and and why do you love it? It is a game called Load Runner. Load Runner, I think probably came out in 82 or 83 and um and I actually uh, wrote about this for Edge and blogged about it when its creator uh, Douglas E Smith uh, passed away a number of years ago. Load Runner was a really formative game for me. You know, as a child growing up, I didn't have a I had friends with Intellivisions and ColecoVisions, but I never had one. I was the child of a of a single mother and we didn't have a lot of money. I was never going to get a game console. The first game console I ever owned was an, an original Xbox, actually. Really? I guess in the early 80s, my mother decided that rather than get a game console for me, she saved up and she got me a Commodore VIC-20 for Christmas. So it was sort of a computer and... and um, Educational. 
educational, uh, you know, tool for the future. Yeah. <laughs> and I got a game for it, which came on a cartridge and it was Load Runner and I had never heard of it, but, uh, you know, you could plug it in the back and, and I think there was maybe 99 levels or something like that. Load Runner is a fantastic game. I mean, it's a, you know, it's an arcade style. You got three lives and get past the levels by collecting all the gold and yeah, just just explain what you what it looks like and, and what you do in the game. Yeah, I mean it's a single screen game with with you know platforms made of bricks of different kinds and ladders and and like monkey hand over hand bars and you kind of move around the game avoiding these AI that try to match their height and and get to you and you can dig holes. You can you have this little ray gun that goes <laughs> and like melts the rock behind <laughs> you and then if the if the bad guys fall in it then they'll either fall through or if there's a brick underneath, they'll just fall in a hole and then the hole will heal and close after a time and you kill them by doing that. But then I think they come back and they come back eventually. Uh, and you can you can also jump in the holes and kind of destroy the environment to make your way through and make tunnels and get to the gold bars that you're trying to steal and whatever. Mm-hmm. So so really fun game. And, you know, with a hundred levels, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's quite, goes on for quite a long time. But... That's not the amazing part, right? The the amazing part is that this game comes with a level editor, even on a VIC-20, right? You wow. select the, the the kind of brick or the ladder that you want, and then you move in the screen and you hold the button and you and you paint the, the brick and the ladder and you, you build your level and you save the level by taking a cassette tape and putting it in the cassette drive and pressing save and it records the level file and you have to write down at 106 on the dial on the... On the cassette dial, uh, that's where you can load that level. And I must have made 200 levels for that game wow. um, and had a big list of like all of my favorite <laughs> ones and, you know, knew where they were recorded on the dial and where I could write over the ones that I didn't like as much. And like, I just was really, really engaged by this process of being able to, uh, you know, after I finished the game, after I got to level 99, and I think it just stops like there isn't a cinematic there's none of that right i think it just stops it goes back to level one probably uh but then i started using this level editor and making all of these levels myself and you know having a couple friends that would live next door or whatever come over and play them and and it was really it just felt really really great to be able to take the patterns that i'd learned in this game and refine them and come up with cool levels and understand why I liked this level that I'd made or why that level in the game was really, really hard and were there elements that I could take and, and use to make my own levels. And uh, it was just, it was, uh, it was wonderful. And it, I spent, I mean, hundreds of hours uh, with the level editor. So how old were you at that time? Pretty young, I guess. Yeah. So this would have been in 84, 85. So I was 12, 13 years old. Yeah. 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 Amazing. And did you, did at that time you already have this idea of, oh, I really enjoy Making these levels, maybe this is something I could do as a job. No, not really. I mean, um, the idea that there was a job video game creator, I don't think existed in my head. But again, I had the VIC-20, right? So um, it wasn't just a console. It wasn't just a game machine that could have save files of <laughs> user-made maps. It was uh, once I kind of exhausted that, I also started to learn to code in BASIC and I you know, made a, made a couple of little trial things. I made a, you know, the first game I ever made myself entirely from scratch beginning to end was a, was a text adventure where you could go around in this uh, house and you had to find the safe and get the, steal the thing out of the safe before the owner of the house, like found you um, sneaking around in his house. And so, um, and it was, you know, fairly elaborate for what a 
12 year old could do, I guess. Yeah. And, and the, the final, the final, the combination on the safe was a random number between one and a thousand. So I never won the game, <laughs> uh, cause you would get to the safe and then you would get the wrong combination and you try it 17 times and then you'd run out of turns and then <laughs> the guy, guy would, would run you and that was it. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tell me what, what kind of kid were you then? You, you're growing up in Canada, I assume. And did you have any siblings and. No, no. I was, like I said, uh, I was the, the only child of a single mother. Um, uh, I'd been born in, in, you know, Southern Ontario. Um, and my mom had moved me out to Vancouver, just her and I, uh, when I was eight. Uh, I think I probably was not as cynical then, but, uh, uh, this was, you know, around the time that Expo 86 came to Vancouver. So Vancouver was a small town, but the world exposition came and it kind of grew and expanded and that growth accelerated. And then Hong Kong, you know, started to kind of empty out because of the the transition of power from the British uh, back to the Chinese. And uh, so there was this huge boom of immigration in Vancouver. And so it was this boom. And then it was the web.com era. So, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was a very uh, exciting place to to grow up, I think. Did you, um, well, it can be quite intense and even adverse, I suppose, just being like one young kid with a single parent moving to a new city. Yeah. We were aware that... Uh, Things were challenging, I guess, for for your mum and the situation. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I definitely, maybe not as aware as I should have been, but, you know, certainly in hindsight, I, you know, I realized, you know, I, I mean, I remember I say this sometimes to my own, my own son, you know, when I, when I grew up, you know, we would have a pork chop for dinner and my mom would eat the meat and I would chew the, what was left off of the bone. And that was, you know, with some potatoes or some pasta or something. And that was, that was dinner, right? We were it was tough and you know she had to uh work as a first as a as a secretary and then she went to night school and became an accountant and got her like CGA or whatever the certification is and then she became an accountant for companies and then she uh started working for a company that that rents lighting and and grip equipment to the film industry and she worked her way up to being the the general manager of the offices there no way. in the <laughs> William F White Corporation and uh, I got summer jobs there, you know, uh, humping cable and, and, you know, and lighting equipment and gear equipment and repairing it. And then she ended up becoming a, a production accountant in the film industry. Um, so, you know, she worked, she worked really hard and, uh, and, you know, maybe didn't see it uh, as much as I, as I ought to have as I was a, you know, a, a young, young man growing up. No, you're a kid. It's, it's not your, you know, you can, I suppose, respect what your mom said, but you, you know. So I don't think you should feel bad about that. But 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 for sure in in you know uh, you know I think I have a very strong work ethic and I think it kind of showed in particularly in the early part of my career in the games industry and even before and you know I think I I got that from my mother and and you know I'm 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 very thankful for it. I'm very thankful for how hard she worked and everything that she gave and and um sorry I'm a bit I get a bit choked up, you know. Uh uh but uh yeah, I owe her a lot. Yeah. You you go on to do this MFA, so you must have been um you must have been into books, I'm guessing, and and uh, you know, exploring writing as well as designing some of these text adventure stuff. What kind of thing were you reading at that time? So, yeah, I mean, it's funny um and and we'll probably talk about this as we get deeper into the games as well. I wasn't I wasn't a big reader as a kid. I'm still not a not a super big reader. But I love, I always love to write, <laughs> uh, even from a young age. So even, you know, my first game was a text adventure, I guess that's probably because really all I could do at the time. But uh, 
yeah, I've always been writing. I was writing from a very young age and, and all through high school, I was the kid who was sitting in his, in the English class at lunchtime, you know, writing, working on my novel, hey. you know, 72 pages of handwritten in pencil. And then I took some creative writing courses in high school and went to college and took some creative writing courses and made my way into creative writing at the University of British Columbia. And, and yeah, it's the, the act of, of writing, um, has always been, has always been with me. It's just a, maybe a way I, a way I process the world or something, a way I, way I, the way I choke up the world in my experience. So yeah, it's always been, it's always been a path for me and it's, and it's helped me a lot, obviously, like, even though I'm not writing script for the games I'm working on now, I, you know, I do a lot of writing and I, I work very closely with the writers and provide a lot of feedback and a lot of editorial and, and stuff like that. So, and it's good because I think it helps, you know, I think, I think also, you know, that detachment I was talking about, that's so valuable, you know, to have someone who can, who can help guide you. I think, you know, working on, on Splinter in the, in the early days of my career, I didn't have as much feedback and editorial guidance about the writing as, as I could have benefited from, I think. Uh, so I try to provide that now mm-hmm. to the people that I work with. So. Jay, let's come to your your second game then, which uh, follows on, I guess, from the the level editing you were talking about in your first game. Tell us about tell us about this for one. sure. So it's Unreal Tournament. I guess we're talking about maybe 96, 97, something like that, maybe 98 even. I still remember the magazine cover with the big, what, scarge or whatever and the angular green body and like, look at these incredible graphics <laughs> <laughs> with, with his 80 polygons or whatever he had. And that was Unreal. And then Unreal, I guess, uh, came out the next year I, or it was a multiplayer mod. or I can't exactly remember the relationship between Unreal Tournament and Unreal. Um, but Unreal Tournament was was fantastic. I mean, some of the you know deck sixteen facing worlds, like some of the early multiplayer uh, competitive multiplayer games that I could play online with my friends. By this time, I had a I had a PC, so I had a probably a Pentium two three hundred or something like that, <laughs> yep. and an and a dial up internet connection that I could uh, play Unreal on. I, maybe we had to bring the PCs together and play on a LAN. I don't remember. But yes, it was more than that because, again, I could open this editor, which was, you know, we're talking orders of magnitude more sophisticated than the little two-dimensional paint thing in Load Runner. Um, it was this full 3D suite with all the viewports and, like, wireframes and texturing and all of this stuff. And, you know, I just taught it to my... There's no YouTube. You can't go on the internet and get a tutorial, right? It, this doesn't exist, so... You just kind of open this super cryptic thing that you've never seen before. And you're like, how do I make a room? How do I put myself in the room? And maybe it takes you a day to subtract a cube and put a player start and launch, right? Uh, just to figure it out by by a random walk through the through the commands. 
Uh, but then, you know, you slowly build up knowledge. You, okay, it's subtractive and you're, you're cutting rooms out of, out of an infinite solid. And, and then you can apply textures to these things and you can put lights in them. And, and then maybe you do find on a bulletin board, someone's, you know, written a document and there's screenshots in the document that explain a few of the basics. And you start figuring that stuff out. While I was on the one hand playing it um, sometimes with my friends, you know, I'd spend a lot of my time, a lot of my free time when I wasn't working on writing projects for school, uh, I'd be building uh, content, building maps, uh, multiplayer maps for in Unreal. Were you sharing this with your friends or was it just for your own? Yeah, yeah. So I had a few friends that I would I would share back and yeah. forth with and, and, you know, friends that I still have today and they would, we'd play them together and they'd tell me why they were bad and, and I'd try to fix them and... Even um, at one point, I, w I had a job writing for a, for a, the web division of a major financial consultancy that will go unnamed. Me and some of my friends would there would play uh, Unreal Tournament during a lot. We play facing worlds usually like 2v2 or 3v3 or 4v4. And uh, me and the team I was always on were just always getting our asses handed to us. We would always lose, like always lose. And so, so one day I opened the, I opened facing worlds at home and I created hidden teleporters behind invisible walls behind the two bases on either side. <laughs> and we, we installed the, the, the hacked version of, of facing worlds on everybody's machine over the network. At your work computer. At work, yeah. And then we went in the next day and we, and we, and we cheated and we stopped them. And then we, and then we told them like, yeah, we put this teleporter in here. Like, that's why, that's why we destroyed you guys. But you know, it was uh, it was fun just to to be able to to yeah. grief them uh, that way. So you're really cu cutting your teeth on some of these in terms of like space design and all of that, which I know has always been a big interest of yours. Do you remember any of the lessons that you're learning? Like, what kind of things did you recognize at that time worked well and what didn't work well? So I think after fiddling around with uh, with Unreal Tournament and making levels for Unreal Tournament, there was a mod. For Unreal called Strike Force, which was sort of uh, you know a Counter Strike like uh, thing for Unreal, and uh, and I actually made a level for that that actually shipped um, in one of the versions of the Strike Force mod. I can't remember what the version number was, and and I learned a lot of lessons making that because that was the first time I really took something to to shippable state, right mm. right. So I had to download the package and like make sure I understood how the spawn points worked and the team balancing and. I had to debug some of the pathing um, because sometimes, you know, some, placing little path nodes and creating the pathing network and you would end up with situations where because you're often fighting against AI or at least you could play it against AI, that it would be very degenerate. They would take the, the optimal paths. So you need to figure out how to how to reduce the op, reduce the optimality, make the, make one path less optimal yeah. in order to balance the game out a little bit. So I started to learn things about balance that, particularly with AI and that you couldn't learn from a multiplayer game uh, or that were different from a multiplayer game. Multiplayer game, and, you know, multiplayer's never been my, uh, PvP multiplayer's never been my strength as a player. I'm just not very good at video games, unfortunately. But uh, uh, it's, you know, it's about territory and zone and flow control and weapon positioning and balancing in this particular kind of, you know, tournament style um, game. But once you get into the single player side, you really have to be able to think about how the game is operating, right? And the game isn't improvising or making shit up the way players are, right? So the game is much more predictable. And so you have more control and you have more authorship over the the player experience by the way you can control and, and 
gate the flow of the AI and you can stage where encounters might happen or are likely to happen. You just have more control as an author over the space. And those were some of the things I was starting to learn as I was working on on these more single. It, it was still a it was still a still a competitive team game, but because you could play it against the AI, there was this, you could play it as a single player. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I, I'm guessing that some of these lessons are pretty useful when you join the games industry. Um, tell me, tell me how that happened, and you, do you remember your interview at, at Ubisoft and what you said? <laughs> yeah, I mean it was pretty wild. So I was working, as I said, for this financial consultancy. I was making a fuck ton of money. They were just paying so the the pay was really really good. And I was writing content for um, for banking websites, like writing for banking. <laughs> And uh, at the same time, I was doing my master's degree in creative writing. At the same time, I was working with some friends, making independent films. I was, you know, using my my mom's connections uh, to the to get good deals on on lighting and grip equipment, so I could help some of my friends with their independent films. They were helping me with my independent films, and back and forth. and And that was great, and it was super super creatively fulfilling. Trying to work on my my master's degree and my thesis at the same time. And a friend of mine sent me a link, probably to game spot or something like that, like a job posting, you know, do you want to, do you have unreal experience and do you want to make video games at that time? Because I was doing contract work for a web company. I just had a resume that was constantly up to date, you know, sitting on my desktop and I'd just drag it into an email and click send, right? Like literally not even thinking about it. And I got a call back and uh, they wanted to fly me out to Montreal. And I had a friend who'd been in my my band and had been my roommate for a number of years who had moved to Montreal, like maybe a year and a half previously. And I was like, someone's going to pay to fly me to Montreal for three days. Like, hey, Greg, I'm coming to Montreal. Cool. Like, I, I was they're not going to hire me. I got to know how to make video games, right? <laughs> so I got this free trip to Montreal and I went in for an interview and, you know, they they showed me a very early build of Splinter Cell. And I was like, I ironically, you know, set the, the independent film I was making was about a dude in, you know, dark webbing and uh, with night vision goggles sneaking around right. fighting Russian mobsters. Right. And, and, you well know, the, timed. so I was writing stories that were not that dissimilar. The, you know, the Strike Force mod that I'd worked on in Unreal was sort of, you know, using real world weapons and special forces kind of stuff. So this was all kind of, this Clancy stuff was kind of, the wheelhouse of the stuff I was doing creatively, I guess. Yeah, right. 
while I was working on a much weirder thesis. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, we got to talking about it. Everybody was really excited and, and they made me a, an offer. And the offer was for like, it was a 75% pay cut from what I was making. But I was like, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I've been doing the same thing for too long and maybe I've been stuck in these patterns and uh, of my own personal life and maybe it's time to shake things up. And so I thought, fuck it, I'll just, yes. I'll take this job and I'll move move from Vancouver all the way to Montreal by myself and and see what happens. W were you in your 20s at that point? I was 29. I was 29. Just. I was very old to get into the game industry. I was already one of the oldest people on the team when I started, right? You know, I say a lot of times like, you know, probably ten thousand people got their first job in the game industry in in two thousand and one. This was this was in June of May or June or something in July of two thousand and one. So it was you know two months before nine eleven. Yeah, I moved to Montreal, and uh, you know I said you know five or ten thousand people got their first job in the game industry, and for seven of us, our first job was Splinter Cell, right? And like it was. Uh, I mean, talk about winning the lottery, right? Like I was a level designer and a game designer and a writer on on Splinter Cell. And it was a huge, huge hit for Ubisoft. It was a big thing for Xbox. It was, uh, you know, when I started working at Ubisoft, the Xbox wasn't out yet. It didn't come out until later that year, 2002, I think. And then we shipped in 2003. So, I mean, it was a, it was a big, big deal. And I was very, very fortunate to have, you know, you know, bought a ticket on the on the right bus, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Good job you sent that uh, CV when you did, eh? Ooh. Okay, let's um, let's come to your third game then, Clint. Tell us about this one. A really interesting choice, I think. So I'm looking forward to this. So my third game is System Shock 2. It was a very, I knew I had to put an immersive sim on this list. I was like, well, I should probably put Bioshock, but that's probably a bit obvious. And really it's not my favorite of all the immersive sims. Maybe I should put Dishonored. Maybe I should put Deus Ex. I bet you 50 people are gonna say Deus Ex. Maybe I should put Thief. That'd be a little bit outlined, but I was kind of uh, Prey, which I really enjoyed <laughs> um, from the last few years. But you know, the more I dug down into it, I think System Shock 2 was, um, probably my favorite of the immersive sims it's you know it's old school looking glass studios i think it's probably not as um creatively risky and as bold as thief which is very constrained and limited and very limited tool set very subtle game uh system shock 2 is just it's i think it's where the pinnacle of this sort of immersive sim level design was born more so than deus ex I think that the way you move through this world, the the way you unlock spaces, the way you gain control of territory, the way you're constantly scavenging, and the way you develop this spatial knowledge of of the spaceship that you're on, the stories, the environmental storytelling, the story of Tommy and Rebecca trying to escape the ship and you know, I still remember I still remember to this day the first time I got to the you know, there's there's these this couple and you find their little voice logs and their notes to each other and they're separated on this ship 
this is this is just a side story. It's not the story of the game. They're separated on the ship with all these aliens that are taking it over and you know turning people into zombie monsters. And they're trying to escape, and kind of your story is following theirs as they move through the decks and try to figure out how to escape the ship. And then you're going to get to the escape pods, and you're going to escape, which you think might be the end of the game. And you get there, and Tommy and Rebecca blast off in the in the last escape pod, just as you kind of walk <laughs> in the room. Probably one of the only sort of bits of scripted cinematic in the whole game as they blast off into space and escape. I remember watching them go, and looking over beside the there's like a bench in the in the shuttle bay and there's a bottle of champagne sitting on the bench and i looked at it and i saw them blast off into space and i walked over to the bench and i picked up the bottle of champagne and i pressed e to use it and i was like here's to you like lovers like you did it. go and be be free don't i'll take care of everything back here <laughs> i turned around and went back and had to go fight all the monsters so it was a really um it's a very immersive and and very magical experience built built out of little stories like this. Sometimes it's just a story uh, of someone who committed suicide in a room with their clutching their teddy bear from when they were a kid and and didn't want to be turned into a zombie, right? And that you know that idea that idea of environmental storytelling is so uh, core to immersive sims, but it's also in so many other yeah. other games now, and it's so. You know, it's such a skill and such an art, and they were already masters of it before most people had even thought of it. When you when you emailed me, you said that you wanted to talk about a particular game within the game. So I, as you've been talking, the yeah, listeners so. have been listening to music from Sister Shock 2, but it's actually your choice is, is something a bit more specific, isn't it? Tell us what it is. Right. So so the really, I kind of wanted to cheat and sneak an extra game into my list. And, and, uh, one of the amazing things about System Shock 2 is you can, you can, you know, you need to upgrade and customize your character. And part of the thing you have to do is research. You find chemicals, molybdenum and aluminum, and nitrogen, and you mix them. But the research mini game is put the chemicals together and wait for eight minutes, which is fucking terrible. So you're, you're, you're out of ammo or you need this upgrade. You're stuck in a closet with a bunch of chemicals. There's monsters outside and you have to wait for eight minutes. But what they have in the game is this thing called the, the this a PDA. I think it's called a game pig is the brand of the, of the, the, the game system on the PDA. And you find game cartridges in the world. And one of these cartridges is a game called Overworld Zero. And you slot it into your game pig and then you're playing essentially an Ultra, mm. Ultima clone. Like the RPG, uh, yeah. which I found out years later, I think was was coded like entirely over a couple of weekends by Doug Church himself, and Doug Church is kind of a a hero of mine, and you know one of the one of the father figures of the immersive sim genre back from the Looking Glass days, one of the thinkers who was public with their with their philosophies and stuff like that. Sometimes I would start the research project, and then oh well, I guess I'll play Overworld Zero, and then I would end up playing it for like four hours. Like just staring at a screen inside a screen, moving my little man around this 64 by 64 tiled world that's like an Ultima-like uh, fighting against, you know, orcs and trolls and headlesses and demons and looting chests for gold and then trying to get enough that I could go to the town and buy healing potions and get to the shrines and level up. And I don't think I ever finished it. I think maybe there's 15 or you get to level 15 or level level 20. I think I probably only ever got to like level 12 or something. It's pretty, it's pretty hard game. Yeah. But it was just like this when I was much younger, kind of in my, in my blackout period between when I had my VIC 20 and the VIC 20 became obsolete. And then I became a kind of 18, 19 year old and had a PC 
I would go over to a friend's house and we would play Ultima, mostly, mostly Ultima 4. And I played, must have played Ultima 4 five or six times, you know, with printed out, you know, instructions on how to make different spells and potions and stuff like that. So playing Overworld Zero, this sort of Ultima clone on on a, a phone in System Shock 2 was just this very magical experience. And in a weird way, the same way I felt this bond, you know, with the champagne and Tommy and Rebecca, hey. in a weird way, me hiding in that closet while those chemicals were steeping away was my version play, playing Ultima from my childhood on a phone while there's monsters outside was my version of the guy with his teddy bear who blew his brains out, right? Right, right. Hiding in his closet, right? It was like, this is... Yeah. System Shock 2 is a scary fucking game. Yeah. There are places in the game where, where I had to turn it off and walk away and turn on the lights because I was so freaked out. And so when you're hiding in that closet, waiting for your research to cook, you're afraid. And so I would open this game and I'd be like, I'm not afraid anymore. Like I'm having fun and the world is, everything is maybe all right with yes. the world for this eight minutes. And now it's been three hours and I made it, only made it to a level 11 that time. I guess I, I guess I'll try again next time I have to make some whatever sci high bows. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, speaking of scary games, I'd like to talk to you a bit about Far Cry 2. So you work on two Tom Clancy Splinter Cells and then you're given the chance to direct uh, this game in the emerging Far Cry series, which listeners to the show will know I'm a big fan of. I spoke to Tom Bissell, the writer, at length about it. I, I, I actually wrote a piece a few years ago for The New Yorker about the sort of dissonance between video games that adopt, you know, sort of very political settings and language, but then go out of their way to not take a particular point of view. And that's a, a criticism that's sometimes leveled at Ubisoft games. This was definitely not the case with Far Cry 2, which sort of willfully takes a position even if the position is sort of like violence doesn't really lead to much meaningful change. You know, why were you able to do that at this time? And, and what do you think has changed in the in the culture to make that harder? Um, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, you know, Ubisoft, I think, is 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 actually a very open minded company when it in terms of trying to, in my opinion, empower creators to express themselves and have something meaningful to say. And And I don't think it's I don't want to be careful how I say that. I don't want to be critical of my colleagues. I don't think it's Ubisoft that prevents our games from sometimes being true to the messages that they put on their box cover. Uh, I think it's more the the exigencies of of modern game development, sure. right? The need to be the need to sell ten million copies is uh, is is a really heavy constraint. In what sense? What's the constraint that that need to sell ten million copies puts on you? Well, I think I think I think when you know I think I mean you, you know it's you know we can look at, at at the at the Avengers at the Marvel movies and say these are these are great movies they're really fun but they're 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 really digestible and their their challenging themes are maybe not that challenging when you when you scratch off the paint and and really ask yourself the the questions maybe a little more than you would think on the surface but they're they're not they're not super profound, certainly not compared to the, some of the challenging film that is out there. Right. But that challenging film might only have have an audience of 100,000 people in the theaters and and then has all these other ways to to make its money back. And, and you have Hollywood creators lamenting for a decade already about yep. how they can't make the films that they, they want to make because of the exigence of filmmaking. So the, the same thing is happening in games. People want 
the costs of making these things is so high that the people who who have to put their money on the line want to know that they can address the the largest audience that they possibly can. And there's challenges with making content. That there are difficulties with making content that is challenging or that might offend or that might cause people who would otherwise be interested in your gunfights and your explosions to look somewhere else because they don't, you know, maybe they just want to relax and they don't want to think about the problems of the world, which is, you know, fair enough. Maybe they, maybe they're actively offended by the messages that yeah. you're putting in the game. But, but how come were you allowed to, with, let's bring it to Far Cry 2, how come you were allowed to do all of that stuff then? Well, I mean, I think when I talk about the the exigencies of video games, like I mean, and the budgets, like the budgets were were not as high, <laughs> right? Um, they just they just weren't. And I, you know, I'm not going to talk about specifics of of, of numbers, but uh, it was possible for that game to be, and that game was profitable um, back then. But uh, if the game had sold that many, if the game had been made today with a modern budget. It would not have been anywhere near profitable for the number of copies that it sold, and so it creates it creates difficulties. And I don't not just at Ubisoft, no, right? yeah, everywhere of in course. the game industry, it's it's uh, and, and in film and in, and probably in the book industry as well, which which you work in, right? I, I think uh, it's just it's just very very difficult to to take these kinds of risks. I also think, frankly, that we live in a a cultural climate that's very divisive and very reactionary. Uh, which means that the risks of potentially offending someone or potentially being accused of having offended some group and having that snowball and amplify and become a boycott or a or an Amazon uh, review bombing or something like that. Like these are real real risks that I think that I think people who have to be responsible with their with their money, not just for their shareholders, but for the sake of their employees, like people have to spend their money responsibly and. They, they want to avoid those risks if they can. So it makes it hard for creators in any medium to to express things that might be controversial or difficult or have the perspective of a of of an individual's viewpoint on a on a on a situation. How do you feel about uh, about the game today looking back at it? Do you is it still so I mean I'm sure it's something you're proud of, but is it something that you feel achieved those aims? Uh, within that culture, I th- I think I would have been it would have been too cocky of me to put it on my list, but probably it is on my list. I mean, I still play it. Yeah, I love the game. It's it's a it's a beautiful ballet of uh, it's a beautiful and cynical ballet of violence, and I think it there are problems with it for sure. We would have um, had to think more deeply about some of the themes that we tackled if we were to tackle them today. But uh, for what we did at the time, and for what we achieved, and for and for the things that it set up, I think for for Ubisoft and for games and for that brand, I think it you know I think it's the it, for it's it is absolutely for sure the game that I'm most proud of, and I and I suspect there's a high chance I will go to my grave with that be true. Mm. Yeah, a wonderful game. Yeah. Okay, we should uh, we should come to your fourth game. Time flies. I <laughs> have so many things I want to ask you, but let's uh, let's stick to the format. So yeah, tell me about your your fourth game here and uh, and what it is. The next one is Morrowind.
and again, I felt I needed to choose an open world game, and I felt like probably an Elder Scrolls game belonged on the list given the amount of time and investment I put in these games and the number of times I played them and the, the different characters. And I didn't go for Skyrim, which I loved, didn't go for Oblivion, didn't go for Daggerfall, which I love so much, but, uh, but Morrowind, I think, is the... I think it's the most interesting Elder Scrolls game. Maybe the most interesting Bethesda game, you know, Fallout series as well. Um, yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, these are the big fantasy sort of Tolkien-esque RPG epics by Bethesda. So, yeah. Although you say Tolkien-esque, but when you think about Morrowind, you have to use that very delicately because I think that's what's really appealing to me about Morrowind is how it's not really about the elves and the dwarves and the halflings and the... And the orcs it's really weird right there yes there are dark elves but their politics are super cryptic and there's like this branch of this religious cult that's been around for centuries and you know they slavery is okay and so they have kajita slaves but there's like an underground railroad trying to liberate the slaves and and there's these outlanders these ashlanders who are cast out living in this volcanic wasteland there's giant bugs that you that are steered by grabbing their nerves in their open shells that you use as fast travel between the <laughs> cities. Like it is weird. <laughs> There's floating like tentacle monsters. Like it's really strange, and it's not at all in the sort of elves and gnomes and D and D Tolkien fantasy feel. Uh, it's really unique and it's fresh and creative, and it. it you know, I really enjoyed the Dungeons and Dragons film. I think D and D's great, but it's not surprising anymore, right? Tolkien isn't surprising anymore. Morrowind recaptured that feeling of wonder that you can get from fantasy. You know, like a like like a Frank Herbert's Doom, right? Recapturing that feeling of wonder and the world is so alien, but I can still understand its pillars and its rules and its and its institutions and its ideas. And for me, this was really, really surprising because I, I almost at the time didn't know you could do that. I almost didn't know you could kind of undermine so many of these tropes and still come with something that was, in fact, come with something that in many ways is better because as if you're not leaning on all of your existing knowledge borrowed from this entire genre, you're able to deconstruct it and you're able to see it fresh again and remember what was beautiful about it the first time. And Morrowind had that, had that, and still has that magic. So, I mean, anybody who's played any of the Elder Scrolls games, uh, Skyrim or, or, or uh, Oblivion recently, uh, you really, you really owe it to yourself to go back and, and play Morrowind because it's, uh, it's so delightful. Yeah, it holds up. So you, you finish, well, you release Far Cry 2 and it's a, it's a hit and certainly a critical hit, um, which I guess gives you lots of opportunities and, then you you have this period that I mentioned in the introduction where you're moving around to LucasArts and um, you know some wonderful studios. You get to Valve for a bit, but you don't release the game during that time. So why was why was that? What went wrong? I guess if that's not too too uh, negative a way to put it. I mean, I think um, you know I think that the the places that I went were going through periods of transition and change in large part because because of these exigencies of of game development because of rising costs and so on and so forth right you know at LucasArts they were you know about to be bought by Disney uh there was this transformation that was happening there was word that you know maybe there were new films coming so there was a lot of um 
uh, the, like I said before, when, when so much money is involved, there's a lot of hedging of bets. And, and I think that was part of the, part of the challenge there. Uh, I went to Valve and it's not, I think it's not fair to say I didn't ship a game there. I was on TF2 there for yeah. a long time. I shipped man, the man versus machine mode. And, and I'm really, it, that was great for me. I got to get back and be hands on. I built levels. Like I was, I went back to opening a 3d editor and moving brushes around and, and doing that job again. And, and it's so fulfilling to me. It's a thing that I can just do for, I can just do it for 40 hours without, without stopping, right. Without even going to the bathroom. <laughs> and so it was really good to kind of dust off skills and be in touch with, with the actual code and the pixels and the, and the player experience at a really low level again, <laughs> I was kind of a refresher. But you're right, you know, we didn't ship a new game with all of the, the things that go with it. But I mean, you know, Valve Valve had a very long period there. Um, I guess they shipped CSGO while I was there. They shipped uh, Dota uh, 2 while I was there, although I didn't uh, work on those except to, you know, do some playtesting and support the teams there. But it, again, it was coming out for, for Valve, it was coming out this period of immense creativity, wasn't it? And the portals right. and all that. So. Exactly. They'd had portals and left for deads and all of this stuff. And I came in right as that had all kind of wound down. And, and so it wasn't the optimal time for me to be there, I think. And then I went to Amazon, you know, Amazon has, um, been challenged to find their path towards, uh, towards making games. And, and, uh, I, you know, I was, I was happy there. It was, it was, it was interesting. It was fun trying to help, a, a company that was new to games kind of figure out processes and stuff like that. But it, you know, I was offered a an opportunity I couldn't resist uh, to come back to Ubisoft. the The studio head called me up and and told me I could, if I wanted to come back, they were looking for someone to lead what would be Watch Dogs Three. And Watch Dogs Two was still in development, but I think the to put that in context, the Watch the original Watch Dogs team was a lot of the team that made Far Cry Two, and so it was an opportunity to come back not to Montreal but to Toronto. And sort of move into that Ubisoft, you know, one studio does one game, the next yep. studio does the next one, back and forth like that with Watch Dogs. And, uh, but to do it in a way where I could potentially, you know, have or earn the trust of the uh, the original Watch Dogs team so that we could kind of be very collaborative and, and work together on the future. So, you know, an opportunity to work with some of my my most trusted colleagues and and people who I, who I really deeply deeply respect was uh was a great opportunity so so that's why i i decided to come back mm, yeah it makes sense and then I, I wanted to ask you about what it's like being a creative director which i guess is your your current uh current title it seems to me that that's probably uh you, you know the, these really massive pro properties like you know watchdogs 3 or, or the assassin's creed you're working on i imagine it's a bit like steering a tanker as a creative director <laughs> yeah how, how much influence do you do you really have over a project at that scale and and what do you see the really important part of your job being um and you know it's definitely changed a lot over the years you know back on when I first became a creative director on Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, I was also writing, I wrote every word of the script, right? I was, and I was the lead level designer. So I was, I personally validated the position of every single light switch in the game. And that's like, that's not an exaggeration, right? <laughs> right. It was very, very hands-on, you know, in Far Cry 2, I had a bigger team, but not, not a disgustingly big team. There was only about 300 of us. It's actually about the same size as the Chaos Theory team. 
Uh, but the Chaos Theory had had multiplayer and co-op and all of this stuff. Far Cry was just one game. Uh, but anyway, you know, I had people who were more experienced, who could really challenge me and who brought a lot of their own creativity and vision to the table. And so it was much more collaborative on Far Cry 2. And, you know, as I've moved through my career and now it's, it's, it's very much more collaborative. And I think the job of, uh, as I've said a few times now, I will, now I'm working on Assassin's Creed, right? I mean, the, just the, the group of directors that I'm working with has, I think more than, more than a thousand years of experience, right? And they've shit, you know, 150 Assassin's Creed games among them or something like it's, it's, it's crazy how experienced they are and how much they know what they're doing. So I sometimes say I have the easiest job in the company now because really all I have to do is point at the spot on the dartboard that I want to, where I want the dart to go and they just know how to get it there. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm probably minimizing a little bit. There's a lot more to it than that, but you know, helping this team of, of very, very expert people uh, understand what we're trying to do collectively and is, that's my job. And I think, you know, the hardest part of my job right now is that, and you know, this is, a, I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about the specifics of, of the game I'm working on, but, you know, even Mark Alexi uh, Cote, our, our executive producer, uh, said himself, it's a bit, it's a bit different for an Assassin's Creed game. And so helping people who've shipped six, seven Assassin's Creed games think just a little bit differently about this system or this implementation or this direction is, is sometimes actually quite challenging, yeah. right? Like people have patterns and, and proven methods and, and ways of doing things. And if you're, if you're not attentive, it's very easy for, for the machine to, yeah, it's the steering ship, right? It's, it's going to keep going in the direction that it wants to go unless you're there paying attention. So yeah, yeah. that's the hardest part of my job is helping. And, and it's not fighting these people, which often it was earlier in my career. These people are we're older, we're wiser, we're more mature. It's helping these people uh, understand why we're doing what we're doing and why we want to change that one little thing and and listening to them and understanding when they say, ah, but you're not thinking about X and Y and Z and making sure you do the diligence of thinking about mm-hmm. X and Y and Z to make sure you're not doing the wrong thing. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a real delight to be able to work with people who are so good and to be able to trust in the execution and the delivery so that I can try to put my focus on those, those little bits of the, the puzzle that we need to do a bit differently and, and unite everybody around the same vision. You know, over the course of this conversation, it's clear that you're quite a details, you're someone who enjoys the details, right? It's interesting that you give the example of placing the light switches and, you know, you love to be in the editor and working out the size of the room or where Mm -hmm. the enemy is going to come from. Yeah. And it's, you know, from what you described there, it sounds like your job is quite, um, you know, it's about ideas and, you know, which way it's heading and things like that. How do you, how do you balance that? What I imagine is a temptation to say, why don't we try this color <laughs> on, on that lamppost or whatever? Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think, I think, I think I made that mistake on, on Watch Dogs Legion and I was too, too close to two specific things and, and wasn't able to empower some of my directors to to do their best or some of my leads or whatever. I think I learned that lesson. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is, you're right. I am a very detailed oriented person. I, it's important to me that direction isn't being the ideas guy. Like 
ideas are everywhere. Ideas are cheap, right? Um, it's not hard to have ideas. Uh, what's hard is to see an idea brought all the way down through all the personalities down to the this position of a light switch on a wall, right? Because it sounds ridiculous, but like where that light switch on the wall matters to that idea, right? Um, and a bunch of chaotically placed light switches that someone didn't pay the proper attention to, maybe one's okay, but once, uh, but that light switch is on the opposite side of the room. And now I can't, you know, in the case of chaos theory now, because I have to cross the room before I can get to the light switch, I can't, I won't be able to get close. You know, we talked about closer than ever as being the, the player experience of chaos theory, always being in very tight proximity to these enemies, but you can't do that because the light switch is on the opposite side of the room. Never mind if it's off by a pixel or whatever. So it's re it really is important, these details. And so, yes, it's hard to let them go and to other people have control, but that's where the, the trust and the experience and the, and the wisdom of, of age and, and experience and shit titles comes from. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, part of my learning on this project is how to let go of those things and trusting myself that, you know, if I needed to go and reposition light switches that I would be able to do it and I was able to go back and ship a level for a man versus machine and it's a very good one and I'm very proud of it. I don't need to keep proving to myself that I can position light switches. I need to help people trust that when I'm asking to move a light switch or asking for a specific experience which maybe requires moving a light switch to somewhere they wouldn't want to put a light switch that we can find the right way to do it. We've really talked about light switches more than I thought we were going to. <laughs> right, let's go to your fifth and your final game, Clint. Tell us about this one and why you love it. Minecraft. You know, what a beautiful, simple, honest, straightforward game that that brings together some of those not-quite-fantasy tropes that have their own spin and their own take. There's no creepers in Tolkien, right? Like, there's no dwarves in Minecraft. It's this weird fantasy world that has its own rules, like like Morrowind, right? It, it's, it's bizarre. But it still has some of those movements and some of those themes. And on top of that, you, you're level designing as part of the game. Like the game is doing level design. And, and, you know, I just love, I love something so beautiful of like, I want to build a, a tower out of, out of iron. I want to build an iron tower. How am I going to build it? Well, first I need to get some chop down some trees and get some wood and you build this chain of of needs in your head very like when you're good at it mm. very very quickly you can see the whole chain of all the steps that you need to do it might be 
50 hours of work ahead of you to build a train a, a train track and a, and a train system between your village and the other village. All those, all the iron you need, all the wood, all the construction you need to do, all the pieces you need, all the coal, all the, uh, you know, all the torches, all of the, all the redstone, all of this stuff you need and the, 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 the cascade of tasks that you have to do in order to get it all together. It's just this wonderful feeling of like agency and intention and like, like I know how to realize this thing that's in my head. And in some ways it's like, it, it is like writing or it is like, you know, playing music or, or anything when, when you know what you want, but in Minecraft, you can just see the path. It's just there. And sometimes you get stuck in the, like with Lego, you get stuck in the little finicky, like, how do I make this fucking thing work that I had in my head that doesn't quite spatially work? The little level design finicky feel, but mostly you just know. And that's a really powerful feeling of agency and intention, this feeling that you know how to achieve sort of second, third, fourth order consequences in the world from these little building blocks of small actions. And I think in some ways that that's what I think games people say, oh, dismiss games as being a power fantasy or whatever, right? Sure, fine. But I think that games are are a way to experience the value of agency and intention, right? And I think a lot of people miss that maybe in their lives. The world is complicated. People are disempowered. Like, the world's kind of a shitty place. But a video game allows you to build these chains of intention and feel how how much good feeling you get from feeling like you're in control of your of your destiny of your actions and i think minecraft is a perfect encapsulation of that yeah it really is yeah yeah and the fact that it's set in a world where you know you're free to own some lands and if you want you could dig where you don't sure, have to yes. get planning permission you can build the taj mahal in your farmstead if you want and i think it's you know it's really bold also that you know i i almost always play Minecraft without cheating, right? So if I'm going to build train tracks to another village, I got a lot of work to do, a lot of iron to harvest, a lot of coal, like all of that stuff. But I think it's really bold to also just say, no, fuck it. You can just turn on cheats and spawn your stuff and build what you want. And you can just play with it as a sandbox. And I think that's, and you know, most, I assume most people do, <laughs> they're just playing in creative mode and switching back and forth between the modes. And, and I think that's wonderful. I think it's, you know, sometimes we, we, we too often think of video games as being a, a product, as being a, an object. Um, and I, they're not, or to me, they're not. And this ties back to some of the problems of the exigencies of games, right? This idea that we need to force them into being goods that are consumed, right? But Minecraft is just like, no, it's a thing that you can play with, right? It, you can play and you can create, and these things are the same here. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and proved to, you know, make a market of its own, right? It's not like Minecraft was not economically successful, is it? So, um Brilliant. Okay, Clint, let's go through your console. So we've got um, Load Runner, Unreal Tournament, System Shock 2, Morrowind, and Minecraft. Lovely. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? It's a, it's a great set of picks. It's uh, a bunch of games that I'd be very happy to have with me if I was on a desert island, I guess. Excellent. So, And then, yeah, what would you like to... You have actually... You did say in your message to me what you'd like to call your console. Do you want to just yeah. say what it's called and what your thinking was behind your title? So yeah, I call it. So it's not a console. I kind of break break the rules a little bit here too. It's I call it the non-soul. 
and again, it's more about this idea of, you know, lesson taken from Minecraft, but, you know, also maybe from Overworld Zero and, and from, you know, being able to share levels with my friends in Unreal Tournament and put levels on tapes and load runner and all of that stuff is, is I don't, you know, the, the, this productization, uh, uh, these walled gardens of, of games and consoles, I think, you know, I understand why they exist, but in my, since you're asking me about my fantasy future reality, my, my you know, my non-soul would just be HTML6, some hypothetical open web platform that would be accessible to everyone and, and, you know, playable on any device. And you'd be able to experience all of these games anywhere in the world, anytime you want, um, without without the the barriers that we artificially put up to to you know to monetize them and to and and through that action gate the creativity of creators and make it harder than maybe it could ideally be um that would be a, a very nice future indeed how's that for how's that for pessimism <laughs> <laughs> yeah you might upset sony and microsoft if they're listening but uh, never mind <laughs> Um, all right, Ken, just before I, I let you go, um, I wanted to ask you, I said in the introduction how you coined this term, ludonarrative dissonance, which um, sure. is quite, I suppose, sounds like a little bit of an academic term, but it's quite simple in some ways, I suppose, where it's something that got to the heart of a particular creative issue that's unique to video games, perhaps. Can you just see how, explain what you mean by the term and also how you feel about it today, several years on? Is it still helpful? So a little narrow dissonance is just, as you said in the beginning, just uh, the idea that the the sort of narrative or authored or sometimes the directives, someone said it maybe better than me, that the directives and the incentives of the game can be uh, sometimes in conflict with one another. This idea that what the game is telling you you're doing or telling you that the play experience is about may not actually be aligned with what the what the player motivation and what the actual play experience is about. This, this comes from the the, the collision of trying to tell a story while giving the player the means to achieve their own intention, right? And those things can be in conflict. Now, I, it was never, in, it was intended when I first wrote it as it was coming to me in real time. So when I go back and read it today, it's kind of depressingly poorly written because it's super confusing. But in hindsight, it was, it was intended originally as a criticism of Bioshock because I think it suffers to some extent from this problem, maybe not as much as I thought at the time, because it's on the edge of suffering from this problem that it helped me understand it and <laughs> articulate it. I never, I meant it to be a criticism of Bioshock, but I don't mean to imply that it's a bad thing, right? It is a, going back to Doug Church and formal abstract design tools and the idea that we can think about abstractions of how games mean and and how they matter and, and what tools, abstract conceptual tools they leverage to deliver messages and to and to be part of our cultural discourse, right? Little narrative dissonance is just a mm. tool. It's neither good right. nor bad. And you can absolutely make games that are full of ludonarrative dissonance that is there on purpose. But like any tool, you should use it intentionally. And the criticism comes from having it by accident. Right, right, right. Or not having it when you should, right? Not being in control of the thing that you're creating is is less good than being than than understanding the thing that you're creating and and delivering it with intention. So so for me, you know, in hindsight many years later, like like Ludo narrative dissonance is is fine. It's fine to recognize it and say that it's there, but you shouldn't always assume that it's that it's unintentional or that it's accidental. It's, it can be used uh, it can be used as a can be used wisely and used well. 
Brilliant. That's uh, that articulates something that's really helpful, I think. And yeah, I hadn't thought that it can be a tool that designers can use for for good or for for purpose intentionally. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. Glenn, thanks so much for this. It's been wonderful to talk, and um, thank you for your work over the years. And we're all excited to play whatever's next. So yeah, thank you. Been a real pleasure, Simon. Thanks very much for having me. Wasn't that wonderful? A lovely conversation with Clint Hocking, the very distinguished game designer and creative director. Uh, It was really wonderful. And I have to say a little bit rare, perhaps, to hear from such a senior member of such a major blockbuster series. Um, Only a couple of times in my perfect console history has a PR chaperone sat in on the call So full disclosure, that was the case with the call with Clint. Um, We had someone from Ubisoft just listening in. I suppose the reason for that is because I'd been pretty upfront and I'd said when I was arranging to speak to Clint that I would have to address or at least ask him a question about some of the workplace issues that Ubisoft has experienced in the recent years and those headlines etc etc so I think someone was sitting in just to make sure that I wasn't going to hound him on that subject which of course I wasn't going to um but uh yeah I just wanted to let you know that that was there of course the this uh lovely PR person just sat very quietly and didn't jump in or anything like that uh, and we mostly kept to time so, uh, but yeah, for a bit of context, you know, if you're not uh, a journalist and you haven't worked in this kind of interviewing people from senior people from big creative companies, often you will have a chaperone in the room. And particularly if you're at an event like E3 or Gamescom, then they will jump in at some point and say, it's time to wrap up. You've got time for one more question, all of that sort of thing uh, to make sure that you're keeping schedule. So, um, yeah, just a little bit of context there, although... Yeah, this was, I think, a fairly atypical conversation in games journalism terms in that uh, Clint was being very open and honest. I've I've spoken to Clint before in the past over email uh, lots. In fact, he was, uh, I gave a talk at the Game Developers Conference over the pandemic lockdowns. And when you give a talk at GDC, you get given a sort of mentor person who reads over your lecture that you're going to give and checks the slides. And Clint was the person that was apportioned to me. So I did already know him. uh, So I was able to ask him directly, uh, which is perhaps why we got the access on my perfect console, even though, you know, it's not quite the, even though the, the game on which he's working, Assassin's Creed Codename Hex, is not really at the at the point where bit, whereby team members are ready to speak to members of the press. Anyhow, maybe that some of that's interesting to some of you. Uh, I thought I'd just give a bit of context to the conversation. Codename Hex, uh, it doesn't have a release date yet. Uh, it was only announced September last year, but it's going to be the next big game in the Assassin's Creed universe. I think we know that it's going to be set in Central Europe during the 16th century, during the Holy Roman Empire, and it's going to focus on witch hunts and things like that. If you're listening to this in the future, you'll know all of that, so that's not very interesting. The thing that is interesting about this conversation, I think, was hearing Clint talk about 
what it's like to be creative director on one of these huge, huge properties. How you balance guiding a team of very experienced directors and creative leads without getting too bogged down in the details or, for example, where the light switches go. <laughs> uh, it was really fascinating to hear Clint's perspective on all of that because there aren't, I guess there aren't that many very, very senior creative directors working at that level in the world at the moment. So great to hear his insight and perspective, I think. Um, right, I did do some extra questions for Clint. These questions were written by the My Perfect Control Patreon supporters. They were submitted via email and on the Patreon page. And if you want to listen to Clint answering those questions, then you have to become a Patreon supporter and you will get that bonus episode. Uh, so maybe consider doing that. Just go to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console. Uh, it's a relatively small amount of money a month, about the cost of one magazine. And uh, for that, you get your episodes early and ad free. You get previews of who the month's guests are. And you also get the opportunity to ask the, some some questions for these bonus episodes that are now starting to come down the pipeline. So yeah, consider doing that. It'd be lovely to have you. You also get to, you know, jump in the mix with all the other lovely My Perfect Console supporters and chat to them, etc, etc. If you want to f follow more on what the podcast is up to but don't want to do all of that, then you can just head to Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Let's keep calling it Twitter. Uh, that's twitter.com forward slash My Perfect Console and you get sort of, you know, previews of who next week's guest is and also a list of the games uh, that have come out you can also head to the my perfect console spreadsheet to uh, to see all of the previous guests that have been on the show and the things that they the games that they picked and more information uh, lots of the my perfect console listeners are you will be surprised to learn massive uh, geeks <laughs> who work in back-end dev and front-end dev and because we've got this excel spreadsheet some of them are beavering away on finding visualizations for that um, so yeah we'll be launching a website at some point where you can just see all of that presented neatly if you want to get involved in helping out on some of that then yeah again head to the patreon and you can do that uh, okay, we have got a run of some fantastic guests between now and the end of the year. Really, really excited. Some uh, big hitters from the games industry and from elsewhere as well. And really exciting bookings coming in. So I'm looking forward to sharing those interviews with you. And yeah, just hearing from more people about the games that mean a great deal to them and why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. It's great to have you. And I will be back again next week with one more guest. There are five games and one more perfect console. Till then, bye-bye.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.